0: You're listening to The Modern Learner's Podcast, and I'm Missy Emler, your host. In this podcast, we explore topics in education through the modern learner's lens. We dig into our beliefs about learning, the modern context that impacts learning in schools, and the practices that create the conditions for learning to take place. No matter how hard we challenge the status quo or push your thinking, remember this, we're not asking you to change, we're asking you to learn. Now, let's get started. At the time of this podcast recording, COVID-19 is rocking our world. The world is practicing social distancing. Many states have safer at home orders and schools are shut down until further notice. I invited Peter Gray on the podcast before the world was turned upside down by COVID-19. I wanted him to discuss his book, Free to Learn, and his most recent article in Psychology Today, School Refusal, a Crime, Mental Health Disorder, or a Human Right. We'll get to that later in the show, but our conversation begins with a discussion of childhood, play, responsibility, and reassurance that despite COVID-19 rocking our schools to the core, our kids will learn. As always, you can join the conversation after the show. Go to modernlearners.community and sign in or sign up. Here's my interview with Peter Gray. Thank you so much for joining me, Peter Gray. It's fabulous to have you on the Modern Learners podcast. Um, let's just start with where we are, COVID-19. And what, what's start us off with some of your thinking around this particular time.
1: Yeah, well, of course, like everybody else, I have to say this is a terrible time. I mean, a pandemic is uh, is a huge deal. Um, it's a uh, it's nothing that anybody would wish would ever happen. Um, but given any situation, one wants to do the best they can within it. And anything that disrupts the normal course of our life can have the effect of, of leading us to be creative in changing our life in certain ways. And it, you know, the optimistic uh, way to think about it is maybe some of those changes will be positive changes that will, in some sense, outlast <laughs> the pandemic. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to have things shaken shaken out of your normal out of your normal pathway and for for parents who families that have kids in school and um, kids who are when they're not in school are in a lot of extracurricular activities out of school they're finding that now their kids don't have all these organized activities they're not at school that's been closed the uh, after school karate lessons or clarinet lessons or soccer. <laughs> soccer games have all been canceled and so the so your children have a, suddenly a lot of free time that they didn't have before if you're in that situation and you know one thing that we know that I've been writing a lot about I don't know that everybody knows this but an increasing number of people do is that Our children, generally speaking, our children in America are uh, way over scheduled, are involved in way too many structured activities and um, have too little time to structure their own activities, to learn how to structure their own activities, too little time to play. And in my book and in some of my academic articles, I've documented how this change over decades, in which we've gradually been structuring children's lives more and more for them and depriving them of real play, where self-directed real play has been accompanied by huge, really huge increases in depression and anxiety, even in suicide among school-age children, um, And so this is an opportunity for us to uh, take a little hiccup from that, a little bit of a change. What's going to, you know, maybe we'll learn, oh, wait a minute, our children don't need to be in all these structured activities all the time. Maybe the schools will even learn. Maybe we can work a little more play back into the school day. Maybe we can uh, do a little bit less with homework. Maybe we can get off of this. obsession we have had with test scores um, and give children a little bit more of their lives back to them again, um, that would be the hope that I would have. It's interesting, I'm already getting some emails and um, responses on my Facebook page from parents who are surprised to observe how uh, creative and inventive their children are with the free time that they have, doing new things. You know and getting out not with friends unfortunately they can't get out close with friends at least but getting out um on their bicycles taking walks uh doing things in the yard even helping out at home wanting to help out at home helping with the cooking helping with you know things that things that maybe they were protected from before because the parents believed it was more important that they do their school work or that they (laughs) go to whatever uh whatever uh, uh, structured activities after school were scheduled for them. Families right. are, in some ways, um, forced to get to know one another in a way that you may not have before. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's one thing to be carting your kids around to one activity. Another, it's another to have them home with you. If you're also home because your work is closed. Um,
0: Yes, that's you know, been a challenge. hours a day. <laughs> right? Yes, so I I've been um, I've had the luxury of being able to work from home um, for several years because I do support several schools in a small rural area, and so just the transportation from one point to another provides me opportunities to work at home in between time. But having the kids home when I'm still actually more busy now because I'm supporting teachers and getting to an online environment, um, it's been very challenging. The thing that's been most challenging, though, is in some of our schools around the country, we are really moving to e-learning, online teaching, any number of whatever language you want to use. And so my, my kids in my home um, – have actual school, virtual school right now. And it's hard for me to support them because I'm supporting their teachers with with getting them to that space. And there's definitely a transition, but I'm starting to see some Pinterest parenting pressure as well. Um, I've seen some pictures on social media of you know, rooms set up with tables and chairs and bins for each child, and the schedule of school at home, along with their Chromebooks on the tables. I'm feeling real uneasy with the scheduling that we're still continuing to do for our kids. Do you think that's a transition of bringing what's normal and comfortable and the routine? Is that are we going to be able to transition out of that a little bit, or do you think people will still need or expect that?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so one one um, study, you know, one relevant uh, observation that I can make based on my studies of homeschoolers. Um, and particularly of homeschoolers who call themselves unschoolers because they don't structure their learning for their children, but allow their children to pursue their own interests. And I've been um, I've done research on grown unschoolers, and I've done research in which I have surveyed um, unschooling families, mostly moms responding, some dads responding to the survey. And what's interesting is. Almost nobody who eventually does unschooling, which I could talk about the, the research showing that um, it really does work, despite the fact that it seems so con- contradictory to what everybody believes is necessary. Yeah, it seems,
0: it seems counterculture.
1: It's very and counterculture. Yet- it and, works and yet it works i mean i've i've uh, su- i've surveyed grown-on schoolers uh, at least for those people who are doing it i can't say it would work for everybody but those people who choose to do it and stick with it. It works really well, and the kids are—they've you know, never, many of them have never had formal lessons. They have, but yet they'll go on to college, <laughs> and they—they they get in and they do well. And they, those who don't go on to college don't have any reason to go on to college. They—they they have developed uh, career interests and abilities that don't require college. But w- what I want to say is that almost nobody starts off with the idea that they're unschooling. A few people do. These tend to be people who are kind of very much into natural parenting from the very beginning, and it just seems natural to them for their for their kids to keep learning and sort of uh, bio- what seem to be biologically natural ways for children to learn and explore and play. But um, but for the great majority of 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 people, you start off with school (laughs) and school for one reason or another is not working for your child. So you take your child out of school. What happens typically is you see your child is not happy, your child is rebelling in school, your child is coming home, you know, this happy, playful child that you had has now started school and is now coming home angry (laughs) and so on. You're fighting with the child to send them to school. So then you decide. Well, maybe I'll homeschool. And at first you think that homeschooling is going to be like having a little school at home. You know, you you set up the chair and the kitchen table, and you are going to plan. You have an hour for this, lesson hour for that. Well, you think you're going to do that that rarely as i understand it lasts for more than a few days <laughs> because the kid hates it and the parent hates it <laughs> you know the parent is bored by it you know mm-hmm. this is so tedious <laughs> why why are we doing so we're doing some kind of a curriculum that is being presented to us some kind of canned curriculum and. Oh, it's so boring, <laughs> and yes. so the uh, and so the parent realizes that, and so then the parent realizes, well, why should I make my child read this book just because it's on the curriculum when my child is so much interested in this other book and it's ever every bit as enlightening and challenging and so on as the one on the curriculum, or why should I make my child just because it's you know. F- Two o'clock on Monday. Why should this be the time for quote science, (laughs) whatever science is, you know? And and at some point the parent realizes actually my child is doing more real science when he's out collecting snakes and uh, looking them up in the encyclopedia and (laughs) categorizing them and or whatever the child is doing, and you, you you begin to realize. You know, when I let my child follow his or her own interests, my child is doing really interesting and challenging things. And you begin to shift gradually towards being looser and looser and more trusting of your child in the educational realm.
0: Ah, let's talk about that trusting for a second. Because in the midst of COVID-19, there's all of these fears, and you wrote about this in your most recent article in Psychology Today, so I'll definitely link up to Mm -hmm. it, but um, the, the parents are super worried about their kids falling behind. And my question to many of my friends and my husband and others is, behind what? Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Falling behind in what way are you falling behind? And the um, you know we have this view about about learning in school that it is progressive. You have to learn A before you learn B, before you learn C, before you learn D, and so on yeah, and so forth. Yeah, it's far. linear. Is the
0: it's, thought?
1: It's linear, and uh, and and so if you miss a step there, then you. If you miss a step, then you're going to be forever behind unless you somehow go back and make up that step and then you've got to catch up to everybody else again. Well, you know, there's, there's a little bit of truth to that linear notion in on in in a very limited sense. First of all, most of school work depends upon being able to read. So it is important to know how to read on schedule if you're going to a typical school and if you can't read it, you kind of fall behind as time goes on that's true in math people think of that as linear it's much less linear than most people think most people can you can pretty much go into math at any point and and just take in at that point but nothing else is linear at all. It just doesn't build that way. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I can say that you don't have to worry about your child being behind is, again, I've, as I've said, I've been studying people who are unschoolers. And one of the things that very often happens, for one reason or another, a child will decide, well, you know, I want to go to school uh, this year. <laughs> And um, you know, all my friends are going to school or everybody else on the block is going, I wanna go see what it's like. And what the general observation is, is that so the child goes to school at whatever grade level he or she would be at if she'd been at school all along and doesn't have any trouble fitting in. <laughs> so here you're starting maybe fifth grade and you've never been to school before. You just go to fifth grade you don't have to go do first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, you just go to fifth grade. And lo and behold, you find you're not behind. There may be a little of initial kind of, oh, you know, I've got to get used to this whole procedure. What, what it is it to take a test, <laughs> you know? A little bit of that, a little bit of the structure. And maybe there's a few terms that, I, that other people know because they've been used in the school classes. All right so i 'll look them up and if i 'm allowed to take my iPhone with me that 's an easy thing to <laughs> do. I just Google the term, you know, but if I'm not, i 'm not when i 'm home, I look it up, I write it down, look it up. One of the things that happens when children uh, have to rely on their own devices because they 're not always being micromanaged uh, is that children learn how to become responsible. they learn how to think, okay, these are the things i 've got to do, these are things i 've got to remember and if they are a little bit behind when they start school, they're responsible enough to um, figure out what they need to do to catch up.
0: Wait, we need to take a pause. Because I think it's interesting that you're saying they learn how to be responsible. And one of the major uh, arguments that I hear about, um, you know, not grading things or uh, the whole zero controversy and, you know, all of those things about, you know, we go to school, we have deadlines and we do those things to teach them responsibility. And what I just heard you say is that the unschooling culture and, and group of people who have managed to do this, those learners feel a sense of responsibility that's innate. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because that is certainly one of the fears is that if we don't have the schedule in the school schedule, when we're not in school and we're not putting lessons in front of them, that we won't be teaching them responsibility. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I I think
1: that when we are constantly putting lessons in front of children, when we're constantly reminding them of what they have to do, when, we're con- when they're constantly in situations where they're more or less micromanaged all day long, we're teaching them not to be responsible. We're teaching them, all right, all you have to do is do what you're told to do. In a way, you know, we call that responsibility doing what you're told to do, but that's not real responsibility. Real responsibility is taking charge of your own life. Real responsibility is figuring things out for yourself. Real responsibility is figuring out what are the things that I want to do? What do I want to be in life? What do what kind of life do I want? And how do I prepare myself for that life? Let me give you a little example. So, you know, I've been I'm um, in my seventies and I, so I was a kid in the 1950s when kids had way more free time than they have today. And let me give you a little example of what kids could do then. Well, first of all, it was not, first of all, let me back up a little bit. I've also looked, I lo- I've also looked at uh, and talked with anthropologists, read the anthropological work about children in other cultures there are cultures where five year olds are responsible to take care of the two and three year olds. (laughs) They're trusted to do it and they do it. (laughs) You know, if kids were not capable of being responsible, we would not have survived as a species because throughout, All of human history until very recently, children had a lot of responsibility. (laughs) You know, so that they were responsible for themselves. They were responsible. They weren't, they didn't go around with adults watching them all the time. In the 1950s, when I was a kid, when I was five years old, I wasn't taking care of my two-year-old or three-year-old brother, at least for very long periods of time, although for short periods of time I was, but I could go anywhere in town on my bicycle by myself, or with. and, I, and if I went with my friend who was six, I could go out of town on my bicycle.
0: I have to just tell you that my heart's beating a little bit fast, even though I truly believe in giving them that freedom to do that. I'm imagining having this conversation with some of my friends and the anxiety is rising.
1: Absolutely. This is how we feel today. But in the 1950s, that was normal parenting. My parents might've been a little looser, but I can tell you for but we didn 't have kindergarten in the town that I lived in, but we had first grade, and everybody rode their bikes to the first grade. everybody did beginning right at the beginning. everybody rode to first rode their bikes and back, and it might be a mile or two that they went. There was just normal- some kids walked home for for lunch in those days, and, and uh, that was absolutely normal. You would find kids out playing of all ages so when, but here's, here's an example of the kind of responsibility that I'm talking about. So by the time I was nine, we had in the village that I lived in what was called Little League. And this was, it was not official Little League baseball, but we called it Little League. And it was organized by the Parks Department. Now, we'd all been playing baseball, just pickup games. You just go to the vacant lot and you get your own game going. But that summer, when I was, in, when I was nine, uh, the Parks Department organized a little semi-organized game. And so to, if you wanted to be in this league, you showed up at the park on a certain day and, uh, and teams were made up. And you usually showed up with your friends, so your friends and you would be on the same seat. So teams were made up parents were not involved in this at all parents did not take you to the park you had to know to get to the park we we went there we formed the teams now the teams did not have adult captains so uh, players had to elect their own captain and the captain would decide what parts people played and then the, there was a schedule of games and there would be an umpire there It was probably a teenager who was an, hired as an umpire That was our formal baseball, right? And no parents were involved in this. So the kids had to remember to show up at the games. (laughs) The kids had to, you know, it was our responsibility. I happened to be elected captain of my team, even though I was one of the younger, I I was tall for my age at that time. And I was a pretty good baseball player. And people also knew that I was pretty responsible. But we would... We would, um, we would self-organize these games. Nine and 10-year-olds would play, would do this. And we made it all through the season because we wanted to do it. My, my advice to parents is if, you, if your child wants to engage in some kind of an organized outside activity, be sure that the child is responsible for remembering. If the child doesn't remember it, that's a sign that the child isn't really all that interested in it or that you have taught your child not to remember things by doing it all for them. So this is an opportunity I think for because things are not already so structured for us to change some of those patterns where we're, we are putting more responsibility on our children. It, it's an interesting thing. You could say we're, get, we're putting more responsibility on our children, or you could say we're giving our children more freedom But those things are two sides of the same coin. Freedom requires responsibility. If you're free, that means you're responsible. You know, you're responsible not to do something that damages yourself (laughs) or damages other people.
0: Right, that's fascinating. And I think that it's spot on. But in in imagining um, that experience now is, is, Just absolutely impossible. Um, From my personal experience in summer baseball with kids, uh, we have Little League and we have Pony League, and my husband is the coach, and the parents don't miss a game. And I grew up in a farming family, and uh, when I was a kid, my parents barely made it to an event. Um, But now, if I miss one, I think, oh, it's no big deal, they can handle it. But there is so much social pressure so much mom guilt, um, to be present for all of those things that um, it becomes really complicated. And personally, this particular pattern interrupt that COVID-19 is providing um, is interesting to me. And I'm a little bit hopeful that the pattern interrupt sort of um, helps us center ourselves a little bit more on what's really important. And I definitely think that the organized children, the organized activities for children will change a bit. Um, And I'm wondering what we can do to normalize what we're experiencing right now. And so that it doesn't return really quickly because with the virus, there's going to be a longer time where there's some fear and there's some um, suggested social distancing in various geographical locations for much longer than what, we have no idea how long it will last, but when we come out of it, it'll still have some intermittent bouts of it. And I'm trying to figure out how we would maybe normalize the non-structure that we're experiencing.
1: Right. Well, you know what, what I think, i would like to see happen is so you've got if if your if your child has been pretty much in in this typical structured day all day long now suddenly your child is in a day all day long not structured by others <laughs> right. i think that the wonderful thing what that could happen is your child learns Acquires some interests, acquires some ability to structure his or her own activities, becomes creative. The parent sees that. The parent sees how the child is growing from that, how the child is taking on more responsibility. Maybe the child is also taking on more responsibility around the house. You know, great opportunity for the child to cook a meal if the child is of it. You know, has been interested in doing that. At what, depending on the age, it could be you know, a simple meal of, uh, you know, grilled cheese and soup, or it could be something fancier, right? Depending, right. On, the, depending on the child. But whatever the child is capable, you know, it's a, children, children really want to do adult things. They want to do things like that. I, one of the things I suggested on my blog post, I don't know how many people in this day and age are going to take me up on it, but if your child is 10 years old or more, and maybe your child would be and has his own bedroom, what about letting him paint his bedroom, <laughs> his own color? This is not a room that guests are going to be—you know—you're going to be entertaining guests in. This is you know, your child to be entertaining his guests there, but not. So this is um, this is an opportunity to do that really grown-up thing that children love to do. I, I, the reason I suggested is it happened to be that I was 10 years old the first time I was allowed to paint my room, and I just remember that as such a growing experience. I was being trusted to paint, I did it very carefully, I put effort into it, I could choose my own color and and so on. So this is, um, that's just an example, but if the children learn you know, you might make some suggestions. What would you be interested in doing this or that? Because the child might not even think of that it's possible to do it. But um, so, so those are those are responsibilities that children can take on. And if you're not all always being amused by somebody else, you have to figure out how to be amused. If you're not being told what it is, you have to read. <laughs> Right. Maybe you'll pick up a book and read it just for fun. <laughs> right. What an opportunity to do your pleasure reading. And that reading is every bit as educational as anything that's assigned at school. Don't believe that because something is signed at school, it's more educational than whatever your child would want to pick up because your child is interested in it. You're going right. to learn a lot more from what he or she is interested in. Than from what he or she feels they have to drag themselves through because they're being forced to do it.
0: Right. So that leads me to a couple of questions. But the first thing I want to ask is there are teachers around the world right now that are being uh, asked and forced <laughs> at the same time to take their lessons online. Right. And I have some trepidation about that, uh, mostly because there's lots of people who don't necessarily have the skills yet to, to bring the class or the work online. But I'm also worried that what we'll end up doing is, you know, creating unengaging work in an online environment. And so what, what would you say to the teachers who are frantically prepping and planning for online teaching? Um, what what would you encourage them to pull back from or to put out there?
1: Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. Let's go on the assumption that they do need to do some online teaching. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that I would accept that assumption, but let's assume that that is the case. Oh, it's definitely
0: do, happening at the need, state department.
1: They need to do that. And so, Instead of saying, oh, let's let's just give those same lessons that we would give uh, online, in class, let's do it online, why not try to think of something a little bit more creative? So, this might be an opportunity, to, you know, one of the things that, ha- that has happened in schools over time is as we've become obsessed with testing and test scores and, um uh Piece of comparisons <laughs> from one nation to another and one school to another. You know, and children have been just pawns in all of this. Um, we have taken, largely taken, the creative assignments out of school and we've replaced them with drill and memory. And um, so children don't have as much opportunity in school in school as they did in the past to write stories, (laughs) creative stories, write poems, create art, (laughs) put on little plays and so on and so forth. And um, art, art classes even have been taken away in many schools. Recess has been, if not abolished, greatly reduced. Over this period of time that these changes have been made in the school curriculum we've seen a continuous decline in children's creativity. And how do we know that? There's actually, believe it or not, a standardized way of assessing creativity that's valid towards this test of creative thinking have been given to school-age children at all grade levels for many decades. And ever since the mid mid-1980s rather, scores on this test have been going down. <laughs> dramatically done well no surprise we've taken away children's creative activities in school we've also largely taken away children's opportunities to be creative out of school because we're we're putting them in adult directed activities rather than having them create their own activities play self-directed play is always creative you're always creating your own play when you're but when you're Being told what to do by an adult when you're in the little league, as opposed to just making up your own game, it is not creative. So no surprise, we've taken all these creative activities away from children. Creativity, creative thinking has gone down at a time in history when creativity is more important in the employment world than it's ever been before because all the, the non-creative jobs are have largely been taken over by robots and Google and so on and so forth. We don't need people who can, who can crunch numbers. We don't need people who can memorize a lot of information because you can just with a click of a button, you can find it. <laughs> you know right. We need people who can raise questions that haven't been raised before. We need people who can answer questions that haven't been answered before. None of that can be taught in direct, Instruction in class. So, here's an opportunity for for schools to say, "Look, we've been neglecting the creative side. So, if we need to give assignments, let's give assignments that challenge the ch- the child creatively. So, how about you know, uh, how about asking them to to um, to write creative stories or to write poems or to Um, generate pictures. Like I keep
0: thinking about a photo journalist at this time. I mean, if they went to the, you know, went outside and just took a picture or a video of the highway for two minutes near us, it would be a completely different video than what they would have had a month ago. And I think there's so much creativity, so many creative opportunities in photos and um
1: or, or here's a way to put it you know this is this is historic time this is mm-hmm. this is the time that they will be talking to their grandchildren about at some point <laughs> wouldn't it be interesting to document for this could to create be the primary site, resources docu- document this period of time for you what has it been like through pictures through videos if you want to do that through your writing what is happening day to day in your experience at this time when life has been changed very much? So be a, it would be an opportunity for children. So children, what are they doing? They're doing creative writing, they're doing photography, They're, they're do, most important, they're doing some thinking, they're figuring things out. They're doing, you know, and, and they could yes. be submitting this they're you know they're they're learning in a way that's truly much deeper than you're learning when you're doing worksheets that you're being forced to do
0: <laughs> right i think of it as this is such an amazing opportunity to become the primary source documents yeah. of the the text and the videos that we watch after the experience in years to come and everyone's you know i think about other historical um, experiences like the Holocaust. And if you visit the Holocaust Museum, there's lots of artifacts there. But my favorite floor of the museum is the children's floor where I can read about the experiences of the children of that time. It's, it was very touching and our kids, regardless of what age they are, can definitely create the primary source document for the future. And it may never make it into a museum, but it will certainly have an impact on the stories that they're able to share with their own future children or generations. So I'm a huge advocate of that. I have a good friend in Mark Heinz in one of the suburbs of Chicago, and his students are blogging every day at a blog called The Learning Giant. And I'll make sure to list that in the show notes. But those, one of his students had a job interview And it was the first day of quarantine and it was her first job interview. And she wondered, should I shake the person's hand? You know, that's Mm -hmm. priceless perspective in the future when we may not remember those moments. Right. Right. So I just want to touch a little bit because I don't want to miss my opportunity with you to talk about the article that you wrote a a few weeks back on um, school refusal and it was the article's titled "School Refusal, Crime, Mental Disorder, or Human Right," and I read that and was in the middle of my own personal situation with my child, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I am this parent that he's speaking to." So, uh, in the midst of talking about that, COVID-19 is certainly challenging our seat time requirements, right? Our state laws and all of those pieces. So. Can we talk about that article and, and potentially its connection to the, what we're experiencing now with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, well, of course, I, I wrote that article without COVID-19 in mind. It wasn't yes. in, in response to that. But the, um, um, so, you know, partly because of, I, I do this research on largely with children who are not going to conventional school, who have left conventional school for one reason or another. We're also finding that more and more children are leaving conventional school. Homeschooling has doubled over the last, in the United States, over the last 20 years. Um, And uh, there's a growing number of schools for self-directed education popping up. Uh, and more and more students attending them, but especially homeschooling is increased and among homeschoolers uh, more and more are not using formal curriculum, more more and more are doing what's called unschooling. So this is growing and it's working and so so on and so forth. So there are at the same time that that we have, as I've described, I've already mentioned how school has changed over the decades. I mean, school was not, when I was a student in the 1950s, school was not the big deal that is today. The school year was, uh, was five weeks shorter then than it is now on average in the United States. We had a full extra month off in the summer that compared to now and an extra week during the school year. The school day was uh, on average shorter, six hours, now it's closer to seven hours in many places at least. Uh, we had, at, in elementary school, we had two hours out of the six hour school day we were outside. We had half hour recess in the middle of the morning, half hour recess in the middle of the afternoon, and a full hour of lunch and i I can't say that that was true of all schools, but I think it was typical of elementary schools throughout the country. so you were never in, you were never indoors more than an hour at a time, at least in the elementary school I went to um, and um, and there was no such thing as homework in elementary school uh, once in a while, a teacher would s- ask us to write a story or a poem, something creative at home and bring it in to share the next day but we did not log books back and forth. We did not log worksheets back and forth. Parents were not involved in our schooling. Parents were not expected to be assistant teachers, and so on and so forth. So when you were home, you were home. You were away from school. When you were in school, you were in school it just did not occupy our day. I've said, and I think it's true, that I spent as a kid more time playing with my friends outside of school than I spent in school uh, and playing outdoors, you know, so that, and, and, this, and this was typical, this is a normal childhood. And we have, what has happened over the years is we have, we have taken away normal childhood from children because we are depriving for various reasons, not just because we're overscheduling them, but also because we have these irrational fears of what could go wrong if the children are on their own outdoors, but we are preventing children from going out and play. This is the first time in history, except for times of childhood slavery and, and around in, in intensive child labor, that children have not been free to spend huge amounts of time outdoors playing with other kids. So that's, um, so that's the reality and th- the result of this change is that we're seeing huge increases in mental disorders and even in suicide. So by forcing children to, stay, to go to this abusive school system that we have created, we are forcing them to do something that for many children is harmful to them. Some children can adapt to it and some children, you know, some children even like it. <laughs> Most children like to go to school because they see their friends there, but it's the rest of it that <laughs> they don't like it increasingly they can't even interact with their friends there because they're told that they, you know, that's disruptive and they don't have recess, and there are even lunch hours where children are not free to talk with one another during the lunch hour. I've heard from schools where uh, there's somebody with a bullhorn telling the kids to be quiet during lunch. I mean, this is worse than a prison. So when we say, when the child says, I'm not going to go, I am not going to go, how do we treat that? I am being hurt there. I'm being harmed in this setting. This is not good for me. Do we respect what the child says? Do we, how do we treat it? Do we consider it a crime? Technically it's a crime. We've made it illegal, Ill, unlawful for a child not to go to school unless their parents arrange or unless their parents have the means and, and, uh, and uh, initiative to be able to do homeschooling it's illegal for the child not to go to school. And there have been children uh, who've been put in detention because because of not going to school. There are parents who've been threatened to have their children taken away for not sending their children to school. So is it a crime? psychologists lately treat it as a mental disorder <laughs> they call it school refusal right sometimes with capital s capital r you know as if it's a disease <laughs> this child has school refusal <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's as if it's a, this is a, a disease that the child has and the child needs correction and so the child needs therapy, the child needs drugs, the child needs this or that. And the typical way that uh, therefore, well, if, you're, if you're not calling it a crime, the typical way it's treated is as it, as if it's a mental disorder. It's not officially classified as a mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association, but it is treated as if it is a mental disorder. And you can find right.
0: many disar-
1: articles about it.
0: Don't, a lot of times, and I found myself as a parent wondering this. So does unengagement or disengagement not being engaged equate to depression and anxiety? And I, I was, until I read your article, I would guess that as a school leader and somebody who works with school professionals a lot, I probably would have been in that camp And now I've read your article, and I can't help but think that that's unfair. Which leads you to your next point, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. So, I mean, so some people, some kids um, refuse to go to school, and that takes great courage. Some people just drop out mentally. They go, but they don't really take their mind with them. Mm -hmm. And I would even, even there are even A students who are in that category. (laughs) They do what they have to do. they do what they have to do to get the A, <laughs> but no more and they do it they just do it it 's like you you talk to the typical student and I almost mean typical student in in a, in an a p class that student will say. I'm going through the hoops. <laughs> I'm doing what I have to do. I've figured out what I have to do. I have to, you know, I, have to, I don't really have to learn this stuff. I have to memorize it in order to feed it back on the test and then I can forget it and then I can go on and go on. We're generating cynicism. We're certainly not teaching a love of anything that we're teaching in school. I don't wanna say that it never happens. It does happen sometimes, but, I, but by and large by and large. We're also teaching students to cheat and it turns out that the biggest cheaters are those in the honors classes. <laughs> There's actually some data on that and and uh, because they feel they why are they in the honors classes why are they in the AP classes because they feel pressured to do really well and they feel that they failed if they get less than an A so and and they're in this competition and they also are smart enough to realize this is all just going through hoops. This has nothing to do with real life. The stuff I'm learning in school has nothing to do with my real life. So this is not, this is, it doesn't matter if I'm really learning it or not. (laughs) What matters is that I get the A on the report card so I can make it through the next hoop. That's That's the attitude that the typical student has And that's the attitude that's the natural consequence of the way we're dealing with school. And so so here's an opportunity for children to have some real life. And if school wants to relate to real life, maybe bring some of that into the school in the way that we've just been talking about. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think, so in Modern Learners, we talk a lot about learning. And the question we always begin with is, how do we believe children learn most powerfully and deeply? And in order to really answer that question, we have to get to what we believe about learning. And of course we quote Seymour Saracen a lot and he defines learning. um, I won't have a direct quote here, but he defines learning as wanting to learn more. So as a parent in this time of COVID-19 and as someone who Um, is leading a lot of teachers uh, in this time, I'm really trying to help them think about creating the conditions for children to want to learn more. And that is challenging at this moment and every moment because school has um, rules and regulations and mandates and all of those pieces. And I just... Hope that in the midst of this, that as we create whatever is our new normal, that we keep learning at the center.
1: So, so there's a lot in what you said, and and let me, let me talk a little bit about learning. So it's an interesting, we're, we adults, when we think of children, we often use the word learning. Children rarely use the word learning. Uh, children are not interested in learning, children are interested in doing. Learning is a side effect, learning is a consequence of what they're doing. So the child says, the child, when we talk about, well I want to teach a love of learning, what does that even mean? Do you have a love of learning if somebody asked me that, the first thing I would say, well, learning what and why? <laughs> you know, I don't have a love of learning. I have a love of doing certain things. And in order to do those things, I've got to learn something in order to do it. But it's not learning in the abstract that's important. And that's one of the problems with school. So learning becomes in the abstract and then becomes meaningless to the child because it doesn't have anything to do with actually doing anything <laughs> in the world. And And let me give an example of that, how... You know how, um, how uh, teachers often worry about, and parents sometimes worry about, what's called the summer slide. There's a loss so oh, yes. of academic learning over the course of the summer.
0: And lots of people are worried about that in and this time of COVID COVID-19. So,
1: so at one point, I wrote a blog post on this a while ago. At one point, I said, so I keep hearing about the summer slide. What's the evidence for it? Right, and so you know, I do this a lot. So I'm a I'm a researcher. I so I looked at, does anybody citing any actual studies that show the summer slide? And so I found a few. I found as many. I found I think maybe all of the actual studies that have been done. (laughs) And there's not a whole lot of them. And so it typically involves testing the children in academic tests at the end of the of one school year, and then at the beginning of the second school year, and finding, and then comparing the tests. Well turns out that there's no summer slide in reading. (laughs) Reading seems to improve over the summer, if anything, on average. Uh, There is a summer slide often found in mathematics, in arithmetic, but that summer slide is specific to tests that are looking at calculation, not at mathematical reasoning. (laughs) So you forget, the, all, you forget the memorized ways that you've learned how to do long division, let's say, or how you maybe forget the multiplication because you, because you memorize it out of context. It was meaningless to you. You memorize these procedures. You never really understood the procedures. You just memorize them. And what you memorize that way, what you learn that way is easily forgotten. Some of the studies looked at two different ways of testing mathematics: calculation, but also mathematical reasoning, where mathematical reasoning has to do with a more deep understanding of what you're doing. So, a typical question in mathematical reasoning would be the kind of story question, like if you're, you know, if you're going to uh, paint a room that's x feet wide by x feet tall, and um, and a gallon of paint covers X number of square feet, how many gallons of paint do you need? That kind of a question that involves that not just calculation, but involves figuring out, all right, how do I figure this out? How do I, how, what does it mean? What, you know, scores go up on that over the summer. <laughs> scores go up on mathematical reasoning over the summer. And I'm convinced they go up because the, because we live in a numerical world. You can't help but be doing things with real numbers when you're not in school (laughs) whether you're whether you're painting or whether you're cooking in the kitchen you're cutting recipes in half if you're working in the wood shop you're building things and measuring things and 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 so on almost no matter what you do if you're playing baseball you're keeping batting averages you know you're doing math (laughs) but you're doing it in a real context where it makes sense, where where you 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 have some reason to do it, and therefore you remember it in that context. You remember it when you're doing it in reality. You don't remember it when you're just doing it in the abstract to pass a test. The whole thing about being a good student in school is how to is how to train your short-term memory, your very short-term memory, so that you can hold a lot of information in your mind until you take the test, and then you can promptly forget it. <laughs> And go on to the next thing. But in real life, you are doing things in a way that is meaningful, and the mind holds on to things that are meaningful. It forgets things that are not meaningful to you.
0: Yes. That is so fascinating. And we have such an opportunity in this because of where we are in the world right now to give children the space to do things that will essentially be long-term learning. And I'm so excited for the opportunity, but I'm also just wanting all of the teachers listening and parents as well to know that doing less right now is really doing more. And that will be hard for me to convince you of that as the demands are coming down from your local schools and the state departments and the federal government. But really, there is an opportunity to do less and to gain more. So with that, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on the Modern Learners Podcast. Your insights on childhood and play, unschooling and learning are amazing, and very valuable. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. I've been very happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week to, uh, well, to be honest, I have no idea what will be here for you next week. However, something will be. Some person, some amazing person doing amazing work will be here with me next week. COVID-19 has definitely shattered our content calendar, and we are a little off the mark. But be sure to subscribe because I promise it will be a worthwhile conversation, whoever the conversation is with. On another note, Change School will be opening for our 10th cohort sometime very soon. Be sure to head over to change.school and sign up on the notify me list to be the first people to know when it's happening. Thanks again. Have a great day. Don't get in trouble.